as usual, we're going to go verse by verse uh, through the verses that Pastor Curtis just read, verses 11 through 22. The plan, though, is to spend more of our time, I think. I think that's how it works out. But definitely the focus is going to be verse 18. If you look ahead to verse 18, there's a word in verse 18 that shows up for the first time in your Bible here. It's this word covenant, a very important Christian word. Very important biblical word. One of the most important biblical words. Um, and this is the first time it shows up. And it's going to be over 200 times that we're going to find it in our, in our Bible. So we're going to need to spend some time giving a sort of introduction. Briefly, really, but an introduction to um, some characteristics of this word covenant. And what this means. And here's my reason for doing that. I want to... Stock your joy arsenal. This is what I mean by that. There are things that make us happy, that make us joyful. And when we're discouraged or when we're despaired, there are things that you and I can think of that make us happy. Uh, People have told you maybe to count your blessings. We tell our kids that. When our children are struggling with uh, discontentment or, or uh, thankfulness, we, we ask them and try to move them to count your blessings. Think about not what you don't have, but that you would like to have, as we're all prone to do, but think about those things that you, you do have. Now, when you count your blessings, right, you're drawing from uh, an arsenal, if you will, that you can use to fight against discouragement, despair, unhappiness, apathy, and that's for your joy. And when you count your blessings in your life that that lead you to be joyful, there are things that you may count, that you can number, that are true blessings that will bring you joy, but they may be things that you have today, but you won't have tomorrow. But they're still real sources of joy. So when you count your blessings, you thank God for things like your, your home. But you may not have your home a year from now. But right now, you should count it as a blessing. Uh, You thank God for uh, food on your table. You thank God for relationships that you have. You thank God for family. And even when you thank God for your family, and you're certainly counting a blessing, it is a blessing that could be taken from you. Now, there are, though, there are blessings that do not change And there are blessings that that are not moved. There are immovable blessings. There are indomitable blessings that cannot be taken, that don't change, that cannot be overcome. And, And these are other blessings entirely to count that are not dependent on any circumstances. And so in my opinion, those blessings in your joy arsenal are the greatest blessings and the most important blessings to remember because they're always there. And nothing ever changes that. And when we talk about covenant... And when Christians talk about their relationship with God being a covenantal relationship, in there is found truth and realities that are the source of immense joy. So we'll go through it all, but we'll focus especially on verse 18 in hopes it'll be an encouragement to all of you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given us. Help us to see that it really is a gift from you, God. Help us to see that that no matter what is going on in our life today, that we have still been given a great gift by you. That this day is undeserved. That this hour now where we get to sing to you and, and open your word and hear from you, that this hour right now is undeserved. So God, if there are people who feel like they're Their circumstances are pressing down on their necks right now. God, I pray that while physical burdens may not be removed, that spiritual burdens will be taken. 
that this will be taken as, as your word and your truth comes into our hearts and does battle against our discouragement and our despair and brings us above dark clouds that are hanging over our lives and causes us to see light and hope and peace and joy in such overwhelming ways that other sources of discouragement begin to fade away. And God, our hope in that is not just that we would be happier people, but that it is knowing that when we are happier people, God, that we are better worshipers. That we are more obedient. That we are more loving. That our affections for you are deeper. That our praise for you is stronger. That our recounting of your word is more deliberate. God, so we ask that you would bring us by your word greater joy so that we would be better disciples and better worshipers of you so that, God, the big goal we know in all of this, so that you would be glorified so that you would receive from us what is due your name. Do this through the preaching of your word and the work of your spirit. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bible if you have it. And if you don't, one is provided for you in the seat in front of you. If you don't own one, you're welcome to take that Bible with you. Now, the first thing I want to talk about today is... The ark. I want to talk about the boat. I want to get some of the questions that are in people's mind out of the way. It's another one of those instances, right, where a, a certain subject or question can completely dominate a sermon. There are issues that come up in Genesis, right? We, we dealt with this in, when we talked about creation. There are questions that a 21st century educated American wrestles with. And so we dealt with some of those things fairly quickly, but what I felt like was adequately so that you're not thinking about those the whole time and missing the point of the message. Okay, we had to do that when we talked about Cain and Abel and trying to figure out who are these people marrying. And it was just like, let's get it out of the way. Let's answer those questions and let's move on to the point of the passage. So we're there again, right? Because here is this arc. And, and maybe you were hoping for a 60 minute sermon describing how you could fit every species of animal in a boat and how this is actually possible. And that's not going to dominate the whole sermon, but I do want to, I do want to be helpful so that you're not distracted for the rest of the message, thinking that this is just one more myth that is brought to us in the book of Genesis. So with the disclaimer that I am no expert and, and I am not a, a degreed scientist, uh, I will bring to you what I have found in my research at a fairly shallow level to answer some of those questions and concerns you might have. In the verse 14, we're going to get there, but God tells Noah, you know this, to build an ark. And we've got all these images in our mind of the ark. You, right, you can picture it right now. You see whose head is poking out the window. The giraffe, right? Everybody knows that, and you see it. It's on the, the nightlight, and it's on the picture, and, 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 and on and on. God tells him to build an ark. Now, it actually means, a better translation, that would probably be a chest or a casket. A chest or a casket. In fact, the same word, interestingly enough, the same word is used to describe the basket that is made uh, for Moses by his mom. And so, too, you see that that ark was also used to take a man who was who was destined for death and delivered him to life. The same word is used here when this ark is is described. And, and while this is the most one of the most highly criticized passages in the entire Bible, I, I just want to say enough to say this: this is not impossible. This is not impossible. It is not impossible for life to go on and life to be preserved, including the animal kingdom, by preserving them in this boat. God tells Moses to build this boat. He gives it to us in cubits. We translate those dimensions and we find that this boat was a massive, massive boat. 
In fact, uh, those who take those dimensions today and apply them to the building of a sea vessel find, interestingly enough, though these words were and these instructions were given and even written down by Moses long before we as human beings had any knowledge of, of how to build a, a large seaworthy vessel. However, these dimensions, when taken, um, prove to produce a sea vessel that is almost incapable virtually incapable of capsizing. 450 feet long. A 450 foot long boat. About a football field and a half. 450 feet long, being built in the middle of a desert. We'll get to that in weeks to come. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide. A football field is like 53 yards wide. 75 feet wide. 45 feet high, like four stories. And then he had Moses build decks inside. The square footage would be approximately 97,000 square feet. So, so first, wrap your, your mind around how vast this ship is. Now, God preserves the animal kingdom, we're told in this story, by, by calling Moses to take two of every kind. And Typically, the way that's translated is, is species. We think that that's probably what he's referring to. Kind could mean different things. But the biggest number, just to err on the side of caution here, the biggest number that that could refer to would be if it referred to species. So then we try to understand, okay, how many species then are we talking about, right? We're trying to figure out, this is the question, how many animals were on this boat? Is this actually possible or is this just a, a fairy tale? Well, in the 20th century, perhaps the, the leading taxonomist, his name was Ernst Mayer. Here is how he defined a species. And in most textbooks, this is my understanding, this is how a species is defined. They go with his definition. And here's what he said. Species are defined as, quote, groups of actually or potentially interbreeding natural populations which are reproductively isolated from other such groups. Now, please don't take that as the point of the sermon. Right? Don't have that be what you memorize. But this is how he defines species. Now, with that definition of species, there are approximately one million species on planet Earth today. One million species. However... There are many animal species that we would need to exclude that would not need to be present on the ark in order for them to be preserved, namely because they could survive in water. So now that number becomes much smaller and much more manageable if we're trying to really determine how many animals are actually on the boat. So if you cut out fish, all the species of fish and things like mollusks and, and sponges and, and protozoans, etc. The number actually shrinks from a million animal species to 35,000, which is very different. 35,000. We've got two of them, right? So you're talking 70,000 animals. The reality is, on a ship that size, it is more than conceivable that this many animals could be preserved on the ark. Here's how James Boyce puts it. Moreover, although we usually think of large animals when we think of the ark, most land animals are in fact quite small. The average size is less than that of a sheep. Now, since 240 sheep fit comfortably in an average size two-deck railroad car, and since the volume of the ark would have been equal to 569 such cars... Calculations show that the animals to be saved would have fit into approximately 50% of the ark's carrying capacity. You actually needed 50% of the ark, according to these calculations, to fit all of these animals, leaving room for people, food, water, and whatever other provisions may have been necessary. So there's something I hope that is helpful. Now, you may go and you may Google this and you may find information that seems completely contrary to that. And I just want you to know that if you come to me with that information, I'm going to be okay. Because <laughs> the truth is that there are 
outrageous and amazing things that we take to be true in this Bible, not because we can reason them or, 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 or with our logic and our understanding or even our science prove them, but rather they are accepted because they are given to us by God. So that's my humble position when looking at God's word. But I was encouraged to find that there was a way of actually showing some of these things to be a reality. So let's put that in a box, put it away. Hopefully that's helpful. Now let's go back to verse 11. Go back to verse 11 and and let's look at these first few verses first. God is here restating the condition of, of the earth and of mankind. Verses 1 through 7, we saw it. This is what was going on in the world, specifically. Why it was clearly a terrible place to be. And then commentary from God about what was going on in the soul of man. And that's that every thought, every inclination of the heart, every single one, it was only evil all the time. And now we've got further, further commentary. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So these words are here so that we understand That God's flooding of the earth, which we're going to read through, and I'm going to challenge us to really picture in weeks to come. Because the story of Noah's Ark is, is not represented well, often, even in Christian culture. It's actually a very popular, if not the most popular, sort of biblical children's bedtime story. Because the focus becomes the floating zoo. Right? And we picture, we picture these amazing images of this ark and the doors open, right? You've seen it. You've seen it on the felt board or you've seen it in a, in a kid's book or in a children's Bible. Your Sunday school teacher described it to you. Maybe your mom and dad. But you all, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you're not hearing about Noah's ark for the first time. But when we think of Noah's Ark, we see the big ship and we see the, the big drawbridge, right? That's, that's, or the, the big gate that's open. And then the animals are, you know, Moses or Noah and his family are just standing there and they're just, they're watching. And, and, and they just, you know, they have like this whistle they blow. And all these animals are just coming two by two. And the animals are, you know, they're, they're skipping and they're holding hands. And, and, and it's this wonderful, wonderful scene. And then, and, then you, and then they're on the water and it's like a vacation and the giraffe's head is out. And isn't that cute? And these are the things we see in the coloring books, but but that is that is n- not necessarily uh, the, the the most overwhelming part of the story. And so we will be challenged to think through what is actually taking place, because what is actually going to take place uh, is an entire world perishing. An entire world drowning. We're going to think of, 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 of people who are outside this ark. Who cannot get in. Clawing at the ark. And every one of them drowning. That doesn't sound like a bedtime story. Now, we can be tempted to, when we, though, take a real look at the story of Noah's Ark, we can be tempted to think that there is something wrong in God. I think that's a major thing that's at stake right now. How could God do this? And how could God's hand behind be behind that kind of suffering and that kind of loss? And how could God not figure out another way to do this? And how could there not be uh, another way? And what we're saying when we, when we say that, 
What we're saying behind that is that God is overreacting, uh, that God is, is not doing something good, that God is not being just, that God is being capricious. I mean, that's what's behind all of those concerns about God. And we're starting to question him now and starting to kind of put him in the box and start to evaluate and criticize what, what he's doing. This has to be an overreaction. There's nothing good about this. This is capricious behavior by God. This is insufferable. This is, this is wrong. So we can be tempted to think that way. And, and so the way that the author here, whether it works for you or not, but, but his way of helping us through that is to remind you why God is making this decision. And he's making this decision because of what the world has become. The word corrupt over and over and over again. Actually, what we read that God is doing is God is going to destroy something that has destroyed itself. And God is going to destroy a people who have destroyed themselves. They are completely given over to violence. We have no concept of what that would look like. We see pockets of it. When our lunch is interrupted with a newscast about a bomb going off at the, at the end of the Boston Marathon, or when we hear of what's taking place at Sandy Hook Elementary School, or when we read about the famines that are taking place globally, or genocide that's taking place globally, or the pain and the suffering and the tears that are being shed on, and, and other places, and sometimes it even comes closer, and sometimes it even hits home, but we're still only seeing glimpses of what consumed the world in Noah's time the world was filled with violence so this is theft everywhere this is cheating everywhere this is adultery everywhere this is murder everywhere this is rape everywhere this is abuse everywhere and remember the difference today the difference today is not is not that we have evolved and become better people The issue is not, the difference is not in us. Man still has the same sinful potential today that he had in Genesis chapter 6. You and me. We are not better people. Mankind still has the same sinful potential. But God's grace is more pervasive today. Thank God. God's grace is more pervasive. His un deserved grace and favor, namely this, that God is restraining people. This is part of God's common grace. God is good and gracious to his children and those who love him. But friends, God is good and gracious to everyone, even those who spit on his face. And one of the ways that God is being gracious today One of the ways that he is pouring out his grace that is different from how he was pouring out his grace in Genesis 6 is there is much restraining today of sin. But here's the portrait that we have of this world before the flood. The portrait we have, what God wants you to understand as you're reading these verses is This is who you become without grace. This is who you are apart from grace. This is your potential. And it pains God. It's how serious sin is. Sin is so serious that it can cause God pain. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And God acts. And God's decision is a just decision. And it is not an overreaction. And the other thing to note is that as we read this and we read about this pending judgment, God has said what he is is about to do. He's going to end life. What God is about to do, we also must see that God has already begun to judge these people. 
And the way that God has begun to judge these people is through inaction. God is handing them over to their sin. You want to go this way. You want to run this way. You want to rebel against me. You want to do things your way. You want to have what you want. You want to disregard my law. You want to disregard my provision. You want to disregard my protection. And there are times where God does it in your life. And he did it here on a global scale where God gives us exactly what we say that we want. So Noah could have been tempted as friends. You could be tempted today. Noah could have been tempted before the flood and before he received this word to look up like Habakkuk did. And say, God, are you going to do something? Are you seeing this? Do you see the violence? Do you see what's happening to my neighbors? Do you see what happened to these children? Do you see what's happening to my friends? Do you see what people are doing? Are you going to step in? Are you going to do anything about this? Remember Habakkuk. Those were his words to God in chapter 1, verse 13. He said, why to God? Why do you look idly at traitors? And why do you remain silent while the wicked swallow up the righteous? So he looked out as Noah would have looked out and as you and I might look out seeing pain and suffering in the world and saying, God, are you going to do something? Are you just going to sit back? I mean, here are your people who who love you and are doing these things and, and, and they're suffering and they're in pain. And then here are these people who don't love you and totally disregard you. And they're living in the fat house and they're rich and they don't seem to have any problems. And, and so when are you going to come in and when are you going to judge? And when are you, how long are you going to let this go? And Noah certainly could have been tempted to think the same way. And so the biblical response and God's response is, I'm doing something. And what God was doing then is what we see God doing now, and that is he is handing over to sin. That is a form of God's judgment. That is a form of God's judgment. You want to murder innocent babies? You want to pass legislation that encourages and endorses this? Then you will lose 56 million babies and counting. That is judgment from God. Precious, just an example, precious, precious lives. that we don't get to see and know and love and grow up with. Up until the flood, God is actively judging these people through inaction. Friends, do you see that while we are the recipients of great grace from God, that we are also a people who are under the judgment of God? And while the flood will never come again, a flood may just come. The encouragement to God's people is to plead with God in desperation for rescue. Save us. And in this case, who is it saving us from? Friends, ourselves. Save us from ourselves. Do we plead with God like that? The reason I bring that up is because we can have a tendency to to not pray as soon as we should. So another way of saying it is, is don't wait for it to hit the fan. It's already hit the fan. So pray now and plead with God that we may not slide farther down this slope. And plead with God. And plead with God. That he would restrain us. And turn our hearts and the hearts of others to him. Because if we would turn to Christ. We would turn away from these other things. That's our hope. That's our heart. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. 
the length of the ark, 300 cubits. I just wonder what Noah was thinking at that point. Because the first thing God says is, I want you to make a, a boat. Which is a little strange, given his location. But if you tell me to build a boat, I'm not going to immediately assume 450 feet long. I'm thinking a canoe. Fishing boat, a paddle boat. Strange request, but God, you're a strange God, and we'll obey you no matter what you say. I'm sure you've got a reason and a purpose. So I'm sure that Noah thought that he misunderstood God. I'm sorry, I thought you, I could have sworn you just said to make this thing longer than a football field. And God says, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, make a roof for the ark, finish it to a cubit above, set the door of the ark in its side, make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then here's the verse we'll come back to. Verse 18. But, there's that word again. That word again that appears in, in Bible. This transitional word where you think something is going to happen and then it's graciously interrupted. And often this word but introduces that. It's going this way. Everybody's going to die. The whole world, including you. And then God says, but. And he reminds Noah of his commitment to him. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to you to keep them alive and also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. In verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, again, the amazing thing to point out and, and do not overlook this. It, it's not just amazing what God does here. It is, it is amazing. It is a miracle what God does not do. What God does not do. Remember. Remember, every inclination of every man is only evil all the time. Friends, this included Noah before God's favor and grace and heart-changing power was on him. Verse 8, God's favor rested on Noah. Then we learn that Noah became a righteous and blameless man who walked with God. He was righteous because God loved him. God did not love him because he was righteous. This was not a mass episode of The Bachelor where God is looking for this one that he's going to choose and he finally whittles it down and finds that there is one soul that loves him and so God chooses to save him. No. Everyone's sinful. Everyone deserving to die in the flood and God is gracious to one. And therefore gracious to the billions and billions who have descended from him. You were all in the ark in that sense. So what God does not do, God does not as he looks at the landscape and sees the condition of mankind, he does not decide to wipe everyone out and start out with some sort of superior race that would not blow it like we do. That was not God's plan. And that is God's grace. So that is not his plan. God chose to, to send Noah into this ark, not merely as a survivor, but as the, the, the one who was the recipient of God's promise. And as we see here, God's covenant. God's covenant. If we understand, and we can only understand a bit in the time we have. But as I said before, when we understand that the nature of, of Christian, when you understand the nature and the basis of your relationship with God, that is the source of endless joy. Irregardless of circumstances, it is the source of endless joy. So this word covenant in chapters 8 and 9, 
we're going to get a, lo- a better understanding of this covenant that God is making specifically with Noah. But the word shows up here, and so I want to, to introduce it. Let me give you a definition or a few definitions to help make a definition. I want to give a definition and, and then some joy-provoking characteristics of covenant. Some joy-provoking characteristics. What is a covenant? Let me give you three definitions. James Montgomery Boyce defines it as this. And, and just hear the theme running through all of these. A covenant is a promise. And that's very basically what a covenant is. A covenant is a promise. But a covenant is a promise of God to people with whom he is dealing in a special way. We can get more specific, but this is, this is ice cream right here. This is big. A covenant is a promise of God to a people that is dealing with in a very special way. So God created all people, right? You know this. God deals with all people. God doesn't ignore anybody. And there's a very real sense even in which God loves all people. But then there are some people who God deals with in a very special, special way. And he makes very special promises to them in the same way that I love all of you. And I'm not just saying that I really love all of you, but I love my wife and I love my kids and I love my family in a very special way. And I may make promises to some of you, but I make different promises and very special promises to them because I deal with them in a very special way. And God is no different. We do that as image bearers of God. And God is one who deals with all people, but he deals with some people, his adopted children. And God deals with his adopted children, not born into this family, but adopted into this family to be to have his love lavished on them. God deals with his adopted children in a very special way. And the main way that he deals in a very special way with his special children is this is what this is what God, this is what your your heavenly father, this is what our daddy, this is what he does to us and with us. He gives us promises. This is how God deals with his children whom he loves. He gives them promises, promises that are special to them and not for anyone else. Special promises for his family. When we talk about this nature of our relationship with God, we're talking about covenant. Or the Princeton theologian Charles Hodge in his systematic theology defines covenant as a promise suspended upon a condition and attached to disobedience, a certain penalty. So this is the promise that God makes to these people that he's dealing with specially. And it is this conditional promise. So God says, I'm going to do this and, and you're going to do this. Okay, it's like an agreement in that sense. This is going to be the nature of our relationship together. So what I want you to begin to do is when you think of Christianity, think of covenant. When you think of your relationship to God, think of covenant. When you think of your walk with God, think of covenant. It needs to be a very important word and a joy-provoking word in the Christian's life. And then finally, O. Palmer Robertson in his book, Christ and the Covenants, he defines covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered, which is why you see, and you've seen it already, with the clothes that God made for Adam and Eve, who he's in relationship with, who he's in covenant with, who he's making promises to. And you see that part of his provision involves the shedding of blood. And Cain and Abel in worshiping him, part of their worship is the shedding of blood. And we see ultimately in the new covenant secured for us in Christ, the ultimate shedding of blood. So there is pain involved and there is violence involved and there is suffering involved. This is taken by force. This is... This is what covenantal relationship with God looks like. And so you've already seen that while the word is is showing up right here for the first time in your Bible, that clearly, right, God has already been doing this with his people, even in these first six chapters of Genesis. We've already seen God giving promises to these people who he is dealing with in a very special way. 
Some would say that there was even what, we, what theologians would call a covenant of works that existed between God and, and Adam at the very beginning where God said, if you do this, I will do this. And, and what I call for you to do is to obey my law and perfect obedience. And should you perfectly obey me, you shall have life. But he failed. He failed that covenant of works. And thankfully, we are no longer under a covenant of works. Because then in Genesis 3, what is God? He starts, he starts to change this, this covenantal relationship and that it's a covenant of grace. A covenant of grace. And God is gracious to them. And, and, and he says, what? Well, well you, you still need to still need to obey me. You still need to follow my law. You still need to be perfect. But that's never going to happen in you. So Christ will come and live perfectly in your place. He'll take that covenant of works and he'll handle it. And he'll obey on your behalf. And then he'll die in your place. So that all those who are the scripture's language is in Christ. All those who are in Christ will be saved, not because of the good of you, but because you're in Christ who has obeyed perfectly. And so God comes to them in Genesis chapter three, right? You already see him, see him dealing with Adam and Eve and then Cain. I mean, he's such a gracious God. But we see in Genesis 3 as he makes the promise to Adam and Eve, right? That he's going to rescue them. He's going to rescue them. And he makes a promise to them. That there's going to be an offspring. There's going to be a child. We know that child to be Jesus Christ. And he's going to, he's going to kill the dragon. He's going to win. He's going to slay Satan. He's going to defeat. He's going to defeat the dragon out there, and he's going to defeat the dragon in your heart. He's going to defeat sin. He's going to conquer sin and death, and he's going to win you back to God. That's a promise that's made in the very beginning, and so it is God making these promises and in covenant and shedding blood in this relationship with His people. And then you follow the Old Testament, and you just see it over and over and over again. And all that's happening throughout your Old Testament, all the way up until the time of Christ. Right, what we've started is just a, a pinpoint of light in Genesis three. God is just turning up the dimmer more and more and more, and He's revealing more of His will and more of His way throughout the entire Old Testament or Old Covenant up until Christ. More of His will. This is what I expect of you. This is what you should do. This is how this is going to work. This is w- the terms of this relationship. This is what I expect of you. This is how we're going to relate to one another. And then God is revealing more and more and more of His way. How we're going to be saved. How we're going to be rescued until Christ comes and rescues and saves. Let me give you three characteristics. There are more, but three characteristics of covenant and when i give again when i give these three characteristics of of covenant my hope is i want your joy to be greatest when you think here i want your joy to be greatest when you think here when you think about what we're talking about right now if you think about this well and if you believe this then you will have joy in fact, this is the this this is the for those who are not believers, this is great incentive to turn to Christ. This is why we say at the end of every worship service, turn to Jesus and be saved. We're calling you to turn to Jesus and be saved because all of us. Religious, not religious, Christian, not Christian. All of us as human beings have something in common. And that is that this pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of joy. We're all looking to be satisfied. We're all looking to be content. We're all looking to be pleased. We're all looking for joy. We're all looking for these things. And the reality is you will not find them apart from Christ. But there's joy to be had in Christ. Maybe not money. Probably not. Maybe not. Maybe not the new car. Maybe not never having any circumstantial concerns or worries. Probably not health. Some of the things you can hope and count on in the life after. But for now, here's what you can be sure of. You can be sure of these things. You can be sure of the joy that can be had in Christ because of your covenantal relationship with Him. Three characteristics of covenant. Number one, covenants are established by God. 
This is really good news. Notice, you don't have a section in your Bible where God came down to Adam and Eve and said, hey, let's talk about this relationship and how this might work. What do you guys think? God never looks for input, which is great. We give it to him all the time. And it says that he laughs at that. He mocks us when we do that. These plans that, that, that we make, we're, just, we're deluded. But God never asks for our input. We give it to him all the time. He, he never asks for him. He doesn't need our input. So when we say that a covenant is established by, by God, that means that God defines all the terms. This is an agreement. Okay? There, are, there are things taking place on both sides of this relationship, but the terms were not negotiated. God didn't come to Adam and Eve, and God didn't come to you. Christians try to do this all the time and define the terms of their relationship with God and twist things that are in the Bible or say things that aren't in the Bible and try to define the terms of their relationship with God. But God defines all the terms of this relationship. It's not a give and take relationship. So a covenantal relationship, covenants are established by God. Now, we don't like this as human beings, but we should really like this. We don't like this because we don't want someone else's will imposed on us. Well, don't tell me how I'm going to relate to you and all these conditions and all these rules. And don't tell me how how this is going to go. So we don't we don't like that, which is why we want to negotiate terms when we get into agreements with other people. But we should like this in our relationship with God, because here's the deal. If God is defining the terms, then, you know, the terms are perfect. This is the good news of remembering that a covenant is established by God. That means that everything about this relationship. That it is established by God. James Boyce says the world does not like this kind of dealing, of course. The world is opposed to God's will. And the establishing of his will in this way seems to it to be arbitrary, autocratic and insufferable. But but listen, this is not the way God's people view the unilateral nature of God's promises. Right. This is a unilateral agreement. As God's people. It may just be a sign of whether or not you're a Christian. We like this. We like that this is a unilateral agreement. We like that because the covenant is established by God. So God says, you must love me and you must be faithful to me to the end. That because the covenant is established by God, that means this covenant cannot be broken. That means that God himself ensures that you will love him. And trust him and be faithful till the end. It's not up in the air. Because the nature and the basis of this relationship is established by God. So God's people rejoice, knowing that if God makes the terms, then the terms will be perfect. Number two. Number two, covenants are eternal. Covenants are eternal. Christian, you are in a relationship with God in which the terms of this relationship and now specifically, let me say the the promises that God has made to you, they are eternal. It doesn't get old for us to say that God is incapable of breaking promises. It is contrary to God's very nature to say something and then not do it. God Two things you can know about God. This should be a source of great joy. Understand that covenants are eternal. God always keeps his promises and God makes a lot of promises. It's not a couple. It's not a couple. It is like raining down on his children. Promise. This is how God communicates to his people. This is how God loves his children. The way God loves his children is by making promises to them. 
I promise to do this, and I promise to do this, and I promise to do this, and I promise I will never do this, and I will always be here, and I will always feel this way, and I will always treat you this way, and you can count on all these things. And his, his word to his people is just promise after promise after promise after promise. And he keeps them. First Kings 8.56 says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Now here's the amazing thing. Not only does God, so these covenant, it, it is eternal. In other words, these promises, God keeps these promises and He doesn't change them either. He doesn't like downgrade them based on your behavior. These promises are eternal. No matter what you're going through, you can go to God's promises and be reminded that they are true right here and right now. But listen to how God, pay attention in God's word to how he interacts with us as his, his, his kids. He makes promises, right? But then, for example, we, we see something amazing in Hebrews chapter 6 where, where, where it's over the top. God not only makes these promises to us, but then he swears by an oath that he will keep these promises. Now, friends, let me ask you this. Does God have to do that? God does not... We are suspicious of words and we are suspicious of promises. James Boyce puts it that way, that we are, or Jeff Thomas, we are suspicious of words. And we're suspicious of words because you and I have all been told things by people that turned out to be lies. Right? And all of you have had people promise you things and break those promises. Totally painful. You've had people make promises to you and they even made promises that they said were unconditional and then they turned out to be conditional. I promise to stay with you forever and ever and ever, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, period, I do. But then the parenthesis was, unless I get unhappy. Wow. But God doesn't respond. Knowing our suspicion of words God doesn't respond and say hey listen I made a promise okay and I'm God so that's enough God then we read in Hebrews 6 he swears he swears by himself which is funny it's like we all swear by the greatest thing ever and God swears by himself and God does that he's relating to his children Saying, listen, I've made these promises to you. And listen, listen, God says, I swear to you. I mean, you feel this from God? He says, listen, I swear to you. Okay, I'll put my hand on the Bible. <laughs> put my hand on myself. There's no other name under heaven that is greater than mine. This is the, the best way I can say this. God says, I swear to you. I swear to you, son and daughter. I'm going to keep this promise to you forever. Hell or high water. Whatever happens, you can bank on this. I will keep my promise forever. You enjoy getting provoked, I hope. Covenants established by God. Covenants are eternal. And then third, and, and much more on covenants in weeks to come, but covenants are established by grace. Right? You're not in this covenant because you won The Bachelor. For the bachelorette. That's not why you're in this covenant with God. We are not the most physically, emotionally, spiritually attractive people on planet Earth that God couldn't live without. We have this weird view of heaven. We even say things about people who aren't believers and we say things like they would be, be such great Christians. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> 
what are we saying? Oh, they've just got some abilities and they would enhance Christianity and God and heaven. There is no, no enhancements, okay? We do not bring it to God's table. God's covenants are by grace. In other words, everything that we're talking about, these promises, this relationship, all of this, the foundation of it is grace. It is, it is not, it's not merited by anything that you or I do. And again, right, the, the unfailing source of joy that that is, it means that not only was the, 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 the commencement of this relationship with God by grace, but it means that the, the continuation of this relationship with God is by grace. So not only did he, did he yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, but that even, even today, when it is not going well with you and it is not going well in your soul, his promises are still true for you. And what God is doing in his word is he is getting rid for you. He's getting rid of all the excuses for you to not have joy. He's cut this out of the picture. No, I'm not going to change my promises. I'm God. These promises are eternal. Uh, no, this is not contingent on you. This is contingent on me. Uh, it's established by, by me. Uh, no, this is not going to be about your, your works, and I'm going to re- reward you. You know, when you, I say sit, you sit. I say stand, you stand. Here's your, your treat. No, this is not how this relationship works. This is all, this is all, by, this is all by grace. God's covenant is a covenant of grace. Now, the response to that kind of grace, then, because what we're not saying, when we say that God's love comes first and then God's righteousness, not that we are righteous and, and then God loves us, but, but, but make, make no mistake, but there will be fruit in the life of a Christian. And a Christian will look more and more like Jesus. And a Christian will see sin mortified in their lives. And a Christian will become increasingly holy. It may be incremental and barely noticeable. But there will be an increase. And the reason is, the reason is, is a Christian becomes more and more obedient. Not, again, because we've, 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 We've turned this upside down. A Christian does not become more and more obedient because they want more and more favor from God. Because a Christian already has maximum favor from God. But a Christian is, is, is not motivated to get something from God. A Christian is motivated because of what they've received already from God. Maximum favor. Which is why verse 22, again, after the grace and after the favor, we find that Noah obeyed God. Noah obeyed God. In fact, it says he did all that God commanded him to do. Noah obeyed God. Noah was provoked to obedience after he heard that God was going to save him and his family. Not so that God would save him and his family. A heart of gratitude. So, Christian, this is the nature and the basis of your relationship with God. Covenant. These are the things you want, the truths you want in your joy arsenal to recall over and over and over again. This is what equips us to live in this world and to honor God. What do you think got Noah through the next 100 years? It took him about 100 years to build this boat. A hundred years building a massive boat in the desert, in a world overrun with violence. And yet every day he's out there with his boys and they're hammering nails over and over and over again. What do you think kept him focused? What do you think kept him obedient? Was it not his knowledge of the grace of God? Of God's favor resting on him. How great the love the Father has lavished on us that we may be called the children of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And so we can say like Anne Cousin, the 19th century British poet, when she said, Oh, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. We don't belong there. But he brings us there. Oh, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine, a house with the best, best wine. One of the commentaries that I'm reading is by 
James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor. And, and he tells a story about a woman that he met when he was very early in his pastoral ministry. And very early in his pastoral ministry, he was in France for a time. And, and for a time, he, he lived with this woman that he described as uh, this lovely, godly, elderly woman. And he learned much, much about how to live a godly life from this, from this woman. So he's living with this, this woman in, in France. And she told him this story. How she came to Christ under the ministry of another pastor whose name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. Because early on in his ministry, he was evangelizing in France. And since this woman was younger, she came to know Christ through the Barnhouse family. And she also adopted because she watched a lot of the traditions that took place in this family. And one of the traditions was that uh, in Donald Barnhouse's family, they had what was called a promise box. A promise box. It was a little box, and inside this box were hundreds of little scrolls. And on all these little pieces of paper were written a different promise of God from the Bible. And so he's write the promise out and write the scripture reference and fold it up, roll it up, and, and put it in the box. And you know, there's hundreds of them that are piled in this box. And what the, what the Barnhouse family would do is anytime one of them or all of them felt like they needed particular comfort from God. They just reach their hand in the box and pull out a promise and they'd read it. So she adopted this tradition. And she was also alive in the middle of the 20th century in France. So if you, you remember history, you know, this during World War II and that, that France was, was not a safe place to, to be. And so her family fell victim to a lot of what was taking place. And she recalled to James Boyce this one, one evening where she remembers that she had reached a, an absolute low point of, of discouragement and despair. Um, she was sitting down at the dinner table with her children and she looked across the table and they're, they're all emaciated. They're, their bodies are just, their bodies are, are withering away. They've got no food. They're, they're starving um, there's no supplies, and it, it's day to day. And they, they're having for dinner these uh, a stack of potato peelings that they found behind a restaurant. And, and, she, and she, as you can imagine, just is like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't handle this. And the Holy Spirit brings to mind the promise box, which. It, in, in all the struggle and all the strife it had actually kind of drifted from being the in the center of things. And so she she goes to her she's telling James Boyce's story, so she goes to her closet uh, to find and to get the promise box. I mean it, but it's the last resort. And she even prayed. Lord, oh Lord, I have such great need. She remembers praying this. Is there a promise here that is really for me? Show me, O oh Lord, what promise I can have in this time of famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. So cool. So she reaches up to retrieve the box, to pull it down, and to take out a promise. And the box, by God's sovereign hand, slips. And the top comes off. And every little scroll of paper falls down on her. Frustration, right, for a split second until she realizes what God has just done. Her prayer, is there, is there a promise in here that can get me through this. Friends, this is God's truth for you, Christian. They're all yours. Amen. They're all yours. Just go, just go find them. It's yours. 
He has set His love and affection on you. And you can trust in this because you are in a covenant relationship with your God. It has been established by God. It is an eternal covenant. And it is a covenant of grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your truth. God, you know how quickly we are choked out by the weeds in this life and you know how quickly we forget these truths and how, how prone we are to wander and how, how easily we get uh, distracted with the things of this world. And God, if we, could, if we could somehow bottle up the joy we feel in these moments and, and take it with us and, and open it at, at any given time and, and feel this way again and again and again, we would, we would do it, Lord. But our, our sinfulness, Lord, and our, our rebellion and our persistency in turning to ourselves and trusting ourselves, you, you know, God, we are our own worst enemies. So, Father, we plead with you. Do not let us slide. Do not let us slip. God, we plead with you. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of your mercy. May we hide your word in our hearts and, and, and bring us word and bring us providence that will, that will bring to mind our covenant relationship with you. And God, I pray that if there are people here this morning who are not, who are not in a relationship with you who have not turned to you, who have not placed their faith and trust in you. God, we encourage them, you know, to turn to you, to trust in you, to place their faith in you. And now, God, at the same time, we acknowledge with your word in hand that what we call our friends to do, they cannot do unless you act. So, Father, we are pleading with you not only to act in our lives, but to act in the lives of others. God, we know that your justice and your inaction at this point, we know it's good. We know it's right. We know it's just. We know we need to trust that. But, Lord, with the heart you've given us out of love, we plead with you for the souls of our friends, of our family, of our neighbors, of our co-workers. God, make us diligent to share that truth. And then God, make a soil in their heart where that truth can be planted and flourish. In this time of communion, cause us and help us to remember rightly the cross and to lose ourselves in the cross and to be consumed with the realities of the cross and find in us more worship and praise and, and adoration for You, God. We ask these things. We plead for these things. In the great name of Your Son, who is Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.